Here at Grace Bible Church, we take the preaching of the Word of God seriously. We, we delight in God's Word one verse at a time. As such, we, slowly, we are slowly working through the book of James. And we've actually made it to James chapter 4. But today's sermon will be just a little bit different. Uh, typically, we take the next section of Scripture and we begin to explain that section of Scripture. But as I was preparing this week's sermon... Uh, I realized that we needed to take a fresh look at the first three chapters of, of this book. We need to gain a, a better understanding of James's message because I believe that we've arrived at what would we consider the peak of his exhortation. The next ten verses are shocking. They're shocking to the system when, when you understand, but could be even overwhelming if we miss James's point. So we're going to take some time today to pull back and, and look at James's message from a little bit different perspective. So let me pray, and then we'll read James 4, 1 through 10, and we'll go forward from there. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning. We praise you that we could be here together. Father, we praise you for the Word of God. Father, we want to uh, preach the Word in season and out of season. We want to be those who are faithful. That we would be faithful to do what it is that you would have us do. Heralding, uh, proclaiming your word. Father, we pray that we would do so even this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read James 4, 1 through 10. Starting in verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures." You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us, but He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble." Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will, re- he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep, and let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. On March 1st, 2018... Uh, It was a tragic day for the Masters University. On that day, the co-founder and professor of the Israel Extension, called the IBEX, told the university that he could no longer affirm its doctrinal statement, particularly as it concerned the affirmation of the deity of Christ and the Trinity. As you might imagine, this came as a tremendous shock 
a tremendous shock to the faculty and to the administration. He had, this man had helped uh, found the Israel extension and it helped even, even helped plant a church there in Israel. He taught at the institution for over two decades and seemingly overnight he denied the deity of our Lord. Immediately he was sent to his friend and mentor who pled with him to turn from his error. They met, they held a meeting where the truths of the divinity of the Messiah was, were laid out before him. After a day-long meeting, he did not change. And eventually, after meeting with the further meetings with the administration, he was let go from the university. Tragically, at this point, he believes that Jesus is only a man. Now, he believes that he is the most important man, and he is the Messiah, but he does not believe that Jesus is God, and he does not believe that Jesus is preexistent. He does not believe that he is the second person of the Trinity. And he does not believe that the Holy Spirit is a person, but only a power of God, or the power of God. So how does a man, this is the question, how does a man who has proclaimed orthodox belief for so long, who has even taught the deep truths of Scripture, he's taught the deep truths of the Trinity, how does this man come to unbelief, to the point of unbelief? The biblical answer, and I believe the correct answer, as sad as it is, is that if he persists in his unbelief, he was never a believer in the first place. That's the sad truth. Now my heart is for the repentance of this man. My heart goes out to his family I I pray that he would come to embrace the Christ of the Bible. But if he does not, then we can know that his faith was never genuine. Unfortunately, from the beginning of the church, many have denied the deity of Christ. Some continue to self-identify as Christians, even as they deny the orthodox understanding of, of Christ, of Jesus. There are a few famous names which come to mind. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormons. Charles Taze Russell, founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They, they come to understand Christ to be something different than what the Scriptures teach Him to be. They use man's logic to come to this conclusion. But many deny and outright walk away from the faith. This is James's main concern as he pens this epistle. He's concerned that people, would, that people who had proclaimed Christ in their life, who had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, would walk away from their faith. He says in James 5, My brethren, 5.19, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he, turns, he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, in this review, what I want to do is explore James's teaching concerning the nature of belief versus unbelief. I want, to, I want us to, to look at what I've found to be 11 contrasts that he, he came up with. This is what I, as I've studied, there are 11 contrasts between the believer and the unbeliever that I've found in the first three chapters of this book. And I hope that these contrasts will help us better understand James's message. Now James wrote to a 
people who had been scattered abroad from Jerusalem. They, were, they had most likely come to know Jesus and were persecuted because of His name. Now James, the half-brother of our Lord, probably pastored many of these, that many of those people he's writing to uh, during the early days of the church before that they, they had been scattered abroad. So this letter then is very pastoral in nature. Despite James's straightforward style, despite his straightforward style, we can sense his love for these saints. But James also understood that there were those amongst the saints who had professed belief in Jesus, but their belief was not a true belief. As a matter of fact, it was a demonic belief. They had knowledge about God and His holiness, but they had refused to submit to Him. James even said, uh, the demons believe and they shudder. They believe doctrine, but they, have not, they do not bow their knee to Christ. And James wants his, wanted his beloved believe, readers, that is, the true saints, to understand that the difficulties that they were facing were not outside of God's control. As a matter of fact, James wanted them to understand that they could trust God and His sovereignty as they endured this great difficulty. He wanted the saints to understand that even though they were enduring persecution from outside the church, and indifference, get this, and indifference inside the church, they could trust God. Now, we have to understand, I believe that there are three different types of people that that James is writing to here. I think James is writing to believers in the church, but I also think that he's writing to unbelievers who are in the church. And he's also writing to unbelievers who are outside the church. And we can see these groups of people as he continues to write, and we'll see this as we go forward. He wanted the the believers in the church, he wanted them to cry out to God for the wisdom and understanding that they needed now, for that they needed the wisdom they needed to make it through or endure the difficulties. James wanted them to understand that they had to have God's wisdom to make it through. He wants us to depend upon Him and Him alone. And He uses trials and difficulty, suffering, to strip away our dependence upon anything in this world. He's still doing that even today. I'm reminded of the words of the song, of the song, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken. It says, Man may trouble and distre- distress me, twill but drive me to thy breast. Life with trials hard may press me, heaven will bring me sweeter rest. Our trials and difficulties are specifically, get this, are specifically designed to drive us to the Lord, to de- drive us in, to depend upon Him. And in the case of these dear saints that James is writing to, he wanted them to understand that their trials came from God along with the wisdom they needed to live through them. And James understood the importance of their endurance because these folks, according to James, were the first fruits of the fledgling church. They were the first fruits of the church. They were the beginning stages of the church. And he understood the difficulties they were facing, so he exhorted them to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Because he knew that the anger of man did not produce the righteousness that God desires. He knew the only way to survive and thrive amid all that life was throwing at them was to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. 
He understood that they needed, they needed to help one another as they faced these grave difficulties. There were some who were not as affected as others. He called upon these folks to fulfill the royal law by loving their neighbor as themselves. Unfortunately, instead of helping their brethren in need, they had been showing partiality to those who they thought could help them. Instead of helping their brother in need or brother and sister who came to them in need, they were showing partiality to those who they thought could help them remain in their comfort. They even, most likely, were showing partiality toward rich people who had oppressed the church in hopes of gaining some favor. This did not set well. This didn't set well with James, who understood the folly and sinfulness of, of such actions, that it would come to no good, and it wouldn't even do what they hoped it would do in the first place. It is possible that some of the brethren, get this, it's possible that some of the brethren had even died because of, the, of ill treatment by their rich oppressors. So showing partiality toward them had, would have made them culpable, making them murderers. James says in James 2.11, he, te- he, tells that if you, he tells them that if you do, commit a, do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So what's most likely going on here is that they're pious in thinking that we stay away from anything that's adulterous, that we would never do anything adulterous, but yet they're not helping their brethren, and it's leading to their death. Therefore, they're culpable for murder. I agree if you challenge me that I am reading between the lines but but you can see what where James is coming from he tells them then that judgment will be merciless to those who have shown no mercy judgment will be merciless to those who have shown no mercy so at this point in James's argument in chapter 2 verse 14 he launches into his discussion of faith and works Clearly, James wanted them to understand that having knowledge and believing doctrine does not mean that you are truly a Christian. You see, the demons also believe and they shudder. In other words, there is a type of belief that does not save. We can go to church, we can attend Sunday school, we can know things about the Word of God, but that does not guarantee saving faith. There have even been many men who have stood in the pulpit know things about the Word of God, preaching the Word of God, teaching the Word of God, but they do not have saving faith. James wanted his dear readers to understand that true faith then is proven by our works. True faith is proven by our works. Abraham truly believed, and it was, it was reckoned to him as righteousness, when he, but, but it was proven when he took Isaac up on that mountain to sacrifice him. Rahab truly believed when she hid the spies. But it was her actions in defying her king, her earthly king, that is, that showed that she truly had faith. Their faith was proven to be true as they obeyed God despite the great cost. At this point in his argument, James shifts gear to address the situation among the brethren. In 3.13, he says that true wisdom from above will always be accompanied by good works and humility, and that jealousy and selfish ambition are indicative of wicked hearts which love worldly wisdom. He tells them that the fruit of earthly wisdom is, is 
discord among the brethren, while the fruit of heavenly wisdom is peace. We clearly see two paths here, right? The path of earthly, demonic wisdom and the path of heavenly wisdom. And all through this this epistle, James has presented these two paths. We see that that James' thought has been heavily influenced by his brother, the Lord Jesus. Especially Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 13, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. In his letter, James then is simply expounding this truth. In other words, we see this truth lived out in the life of the church. We see James is teaching them that that there are these two paths. Jesus also taught that unbelievers would exist among the brethren. Just a few verses later in Matthew 7, he says, Many will say to me on that day. What day is that, Lord? It's the day of judgment, right? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So it should not surprise us then that there are unbelievers who are in the church. Jesus actually said as much in Matthew 13, if you want to turn there. Matthew 13, verse 24. It's a parable. It says in in verse 24, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and they went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. Slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. Slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? Here's the, here's the shocking thing. But he said, no. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in, time, and, and in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So we see here that the truth that Jesus is teaching is that there will be, there will be tares, or there are tares among the wheat. Paul also warned the, Paul the Apostle warned the Ephesian elders that savage wolves would come into the church not sparing the flock. That's Acts 20. Last week we, we had, saw an analogy that we used, a story of wolves uh, that were in the, the Yellowstone Park and we saw that, that Jesus then, uh, we see the truth that Jesus allows wolves in our midst for the health of the church. You see, shepherds, when we know that wolves are on in, in our midst, shepherds uh, have to be on guard. 
Shepherds can't be lazy when they know that the wolves are about. And sheep tend to grow stronger when there's danger. Therefore, God allows, Christ allows these things to happen. You know, I've been thinking about this over the past few months. And we must know that wolves are always attracted to the gathering. When, when we preach and teach the Word of God, wolves are going to be attracted. And why wouldn't they come? Satan is not going to allow God's people to meet unchallenged. He hates the truth. He hates the brethren. He hates the church. And he hates the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter states in 1 Peter 5.8, Be of sober spirit and be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him. <coughs> resist him firm in your, in your faith, knowing that uh, the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Seeking someone to devour. This brings us to James 4. And as we've seen throughout our study, James does not pull any punches. And these next few verses are some of the hardest hitting in this epistle. As I said earlier, they're so hard hitting that I was afraid that I might discourage some of you. So I wanted to make sure that we understood exactly what James is addressing here. I believe that the next few verses, that James is directly addressing the unbelievers in the church. Though I think that he's indirectly addressing the believers. I don't believe for a minute that a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, get this, can habitually live the life that James describes. As an example, in chapter 4, verse 2, he accuses them of murder. In chapter 4, verse 4, he says he calls them adulteresses. Now you might say it's hyperbole here, but I believe that he is addressing those who are unbelievers in the church. While true believers can do some very sinful things, I don't believe that the true believer can live these sinful patterns for very long without great conviction. And I think the key to understanding these verses is James' warning in 4.4. He says this, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Did you get that? I think the key to understanding this, this, these verses is in 4.4 where it says, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, James's warning is for the unbeliever to repent. While his message to the believer is to stay away from worldliness. Don't be stained by the world, he said earlier in the the book. You may be asking then, what is the difference between, how do we know the difference between a believer and an unbeliever? And I believe that's what he's addressed throughout this epistle. And for the rest of our time, I want us to explore this question. And as such, as I told you earlier, I see 11 contrasts between the believer and unbeliever in James's teaching. Now, before we dive into this, I want to encourage you. I want you to understand that there is room for growth in the Christian life. That as, you, as we go through these things, you may say, well, that's been me before. Or maybe it's me now. But I want you to understand that we're all growing to maturity. 
If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, He is sanctifying you through His Spirit. But I also want you to examine yourself. I want you to examine yourself and allow the Holy Spirit to convict you where you need to be convicted. Beloved, let me just say it this way. Unbelief is a serious sin. John Stott says this, Unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. Its sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the word of the one true God and thus attributes falsehood to Him. End quote. So the first contrast that we see in James, the, the book of James in the first three chapters is first, the believer will be truly joyful even in the trials of life, while the unbeliever can never find true joy in life. Let me say that again. The believer will be truly joyful even in the trials of life, while the unbeliever can never find true joy in life. That's verses 2 through 4. Where James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The joy that James is talking about here is a settled contentment that God has everything under control. And that in spite of what we're going through, in spite of the difficulties, He will keep all His promises. Now we must understand that the believer will struggle at times and may even look like the unbeliever. But ultimately, when the going gets tough, there is a settled commitment to Jesus that cannot be shaken. On the other hand, with the unbeliever, there's no stability in him. He professes faith today, but tomorrow he's moved on trying to find fulfillment somewhere else. The unbeliever can find temporary happiness, but he can never find true and lasting joy. Do you get that? He can find temporary happiness, but he can never find true and lasting joy. He might win the lottery. He might buy a new house or a new car. He might find favor with someone rich. Things might go well for him for a while. All we have to do is look around and see uh, many examples of people who have pursued things which bring temporary happiness, but they do, not pers- they do not bring lasting joy. We've seen amongst those who ha- have it all, quote-unquote have it all, we see divorces, right? We see drunkenness and drug abuse. We see lives cut short by these things. You know, at work I saw the other day a public service announcement from, by the government. I was, I was appalled by seeing this. I understand it, but I was appalled that we were in this position. It's about a drug that you can purchase at home which buys time in the case of, a, of an opiate overdose. That's where we live. That's the world we live in now. That, that we have to have the government telling us that there's drugs that buy time in case someone has an overdose. We see suicides. We see murder. All because the, the unbeliever can never find true and lasting joy. You never find true and lasting joy. Number two. Second. The believer seeks wisdom from God to navigate trials. 
trusting that God will give exactly what it is that is needed, while the unbeliever, that is, while the unbeliever seeks wisdom from below, never trusting God's promises. Let me say that again. The believer seeks wisdom from God to navigate trials, trusting that God will give exactly what is needed, while the unbeliever seeks wisdom from below, not trusting God's promises. The believer understands that that the trial and the wisdom to handle that trial come from one and the same hand. And both are good because they come from a wise and all-knowing God. The trial that comes into our life is sent by God in order to grow us in order to make us to be more like Christ, they come, they, it comes from the loving hand of our God. If we believe that God is sovereign, if we believe that God is in control of everything, then we must believe that the trials that come, the difficulties that come into your life and my life, we must believe that, they are in, that He is in complete control of them. But we also, as believers, believe that the wisdom that we need to make it through the trial comes from God Himself as well. That's verses five, 1, 5 through 8. He says, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. So if, if we are going through trial, the believer knows that he can trust God to give him what he needs to get through that trial and difficulty. The true believer trusts that everything given by God is good because God is good. That's verse 17. Chapter 1, verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. The unbeliever, he may read his Bible. He, he may even come to church thinking he might find answers there. He may come to one of you knowing that you're a Christian. And he may ask for, for answers. But in his mind, in his mind, God's answers are not the only answers. But just one more choice in, amongst many choices. Did you get that? They don't see it. The unbeliever doesn't see the Word of God as the only answer. They, what they see is, or what they believe is, is that maybe this is just one choice of, of where I can get answers out of many choices. And ultimately, this becomes a choice that doesn't matter. That's the unbeliever. The unbeliever can't believe that God's divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and excellence. That's Second Peter, Second Peter one three. You see, in all belief, in all belief, unbelief, this is Horatius Boner, in all unbelief there are these two things a good opinion of oneself and a bad opinion of God. Let me say that again. In all unbelief there is there are these two things a good opinion of oneself and a bad opinion of God. Therefore, the unbeliever believes that his greatest source of wisdom comes from his own experience. 
The unbeliever has his ear to the ground listening for the latest worldly wisdom coming down the road. They are here today, over there tomorrow, but they do not have any steadfast trust in God's promises. Number three, three third contrast. James says the, the believer will persevere under trial while the unbeliever will always run from his trials. That's one twelve. The believer will persevere under trial while the unbeliever will always run from his trials. The believer trusts in God's eternal promises. And this trust is proven by perseverance. Those who persevere, those who persevere under trial, the man who perseveres under trial is blessed, for once he has been approved, once he has has run the race, he will receive the crown of life, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This perseverance can be defined as a steadfast commitment no matter steadfast commitment to God no matter the circumstances. You see, the unbeliever will always complain. They'll always complain about their circumstances and will always try to manipulate things to make them better or they'll simply just run away. This goes back to seeking after worldly wisdom. The world says to do what it takes to make yourself happy. And so therefore, when the going gets tough, they run away. Why do you think there's so many divorces in the world today? When the going gets tough, when the going gets tough, they want to get out. But God says that we're to find joy in Him no matter the circumstances. We are not promised a happy life. Do you understand that? We are not promised a happy life, but we are promised a joyful life when we trust in God's promises. Fourth contrast. The believer will not blame his sin on God, while the unbeliever will always blame God for their situation. The believer will not blame his sin on God, while the unbeliever will always blame God for their situation. That's James 1, 13-15. The believer understands the difference between testing and temptation. God will test us like He tested Abraham. In Genesis 22. But God will never tempt us to do evil because He is good and He cannot tempt anyone. The unbeliever, on the other hand, will fall into evil and blame God for it. The unbeliever will say, it's my situation, it's what God, is, God has put me in this place, whatever, but ultimately they will blame God for their situation. And they will blame ultimately God for the evil that they've fallen into. They are carried away and enticed by their own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is brought to completion, it brings forth death. But it's never their fault. It's never their fault. It's like going, I did a lot of ministry in jail. Nobody's ever guilty, right? Nobody in jail is ever guilty. You know, the ones that really aren't guilty aren't guilty, but the ones that are say they aren't. So nobody's ever guilty. It's exactly what's going on here. Number five, fifth contrast. I'm, I'm just getting these from, by the way, I'm just getting these from James. I'm not making them up. This is what James is saying. Number five, the, the believer understands that his life is greater than what we can see. 
while the unbeliever judges his life only by what he can see. Let me say that again. The believer understands that his life is greater than what we can see, while the unbeliever judges his life only by what he can see. In the case of James's audience, he wanted them to understand, his readers, he wanted them to understand their important role in the church. You see, their difficulties were overwhelming, but James wanted them to see that they were the first fruits of the church. That's verse 18. He brought them forth as a as a as for the kind of first fruits among his creatures. As such, James wanted them to understand that their lives were like a planted seed which was to grow into a mature church. And you see, Jesus is our is our supreme example of this. It says that in Acts twenty twenty eight that Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. He gave his life for the church. The author of Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. On the other hand, on the other hand, the the unbeliever looks at the here and now. He doesn't realize he doesn't realize that what we can't can't see is much greater than what we can see. He doesn't realize that, and therefore, it's all about him. It's all about uh, where they're going to church and who's seeing them and, and what the music ministry is like and, and all the things that don't really matter. Sixth, the believer is quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, humbly receiving God's Word while the unbeliever rejects God's Word. That's, verses, that's chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. The believer intently listens and receives God's Word. Just like Jacob, the believer may wrestle with God and, and God's Word at times, right? Jacob wrestled with God. The believer may wrestle with it. The, the believer may even at times reject. But ultimately, they submit to the truth of word, the Word of God. The believer understands this. That we are saved, that we were, that we are saved and sanctified by the word of God. It says in, in verse twenty one, therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. You see, the the believer understands that the word of God saves and sanctifies us, but the unbeliever rejects the truth of the word of God. He doesn't see the need for God's Word in his life. Therefore, if the, if the unbeliever uses the Word, he uses it for his own prideful purposes. In 1 Timothy 1.3, Paul writes, As I urged you upon my departure in Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths or endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. Tells tells Timothy to, to... Instruct them not to teach strange doctrines. Not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. 
He goes on to say, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions. They reject the Word of God. They reject it. Seventh contrast. The true believer understands that man's wrath does not produce the righteousness that God desires. While the unbeliever tries to impose his will with his anger. Let me say that again. The believer understands that man's wrath does not produce the righteousness that God desires. While the unbeliever tries to impose his will with, God, with his anger. That's verse 20. Chapter 1 verse 20. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The, the believer understands that God desires humility, which can be defined as the understanding that no matter how bad things are, they could be much worse. Because we deserve much worse. That's true humility, right? Is understanding that no matter how bad they are, bad things are, we deserve much worse. Micah 6 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness. And what? To walk humbly with your God. You see, the unbeliever lashes out in anger when things don't go his way. I can remember before I came to know the Lord, lashing out toward God when things were going badly. I blamed God for my difficulties and my problems. Maybe some of you have been there. That's what we do, right? God, why have you put me in this position? See, I, I, knew, there, I knew there was a God. I was never an atheist. I was an evolutionist, but I was never an atheist. But I blamed God. I knew He was there, right? God, why did you put me in this position? Why have you done this? It's what the unbeliever does. The unbeliever lashes out in his anger. Number eight. The believer is a doer of the word, while the unbeliever does not act on the word of God. That's verse 22. Chapter 1, verse 22. The true believer is a doer of the word, while the unbeliever does not act on the word of God. These go quickly and and really run through chapter 2. You see, the believer bridles his tongue while the unbeliever has no control over his tongue. That's chapter 1, verse 26. The believer is always merciful, even to the point of hurt, while the unbeliever is not merciful. The believer swears to his own hurt and does not change. That's James chapter 1, verse 27. Actually, that is Psalm 15, 4. But James chapter 1, verse 27 is where he says this, or something very similar. He says that he will, he will visit, to visit that, that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. That, he, that the, un, the believer will do that even if it hurts him. The unbeliever will, will not. The unbeliever will, will never show mercy. 
at least true mercy. According to chapter 1, verse 27, the believer also keeps himself unstained by the world, while the unbeliever is worldly. Chapter 2, verse 1, the believer does not show partiality. He always loves his neighbor as himself, while the unbeliever will always put their own comfort and selfish ambition first. He says, do not hold your faith in our Lord Jesus, a glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal, personal favoritism. So, it, so the, the believer does not show partiality, while the unbeliever will always put his own comfort and selfishness first. Contrast number nine. The true believer's faith will be found true by their works while the unbeliever will always fail the test. Say that again. The true believer's faith will be found true by their works, while the unbeliever will always fail the test. That's chapter 2, verse 14. James says, Faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Now we learned when we went through this chapter, when we went through these verses, that this statement is not contradictory with the truth that we are saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works. That's what Paul teaches in Ephesians 2.8. We found that those who are in Christ will have works that match their profession. That's the point. Those that are in Christ will have works that match their profession. You see, Abraham was willing to take his only son Isaac up to sacrifice him. That's Genesis 22. And Rahab was willing to defy her earthly king because she believed in the God of heaven and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She'd come to believe in him. That's Joshua 2. But the unbeliever will always fail the test. When, when the going gets tough, as we've said earlier, they get going the other direction, right? They try to manipulate things and try to make them work out for their favor. Tenth. Tenth contrast. The believer is willing to give everything and sacrifice everything to Christ while the unbeliever is unwilling to give up their position and comfort for the sake of Christ or for fellow believers. Let me say that again. The believer is willing to give everything and sacrifice everything to Christ, while the unbeliever is unwilling to give up their position and comfort for the sake of Christ or fellow believers. We saw that in the story of Abraham, right? Who took his only son, the son that it was promised, and took him to sacrifice him. Abraham was willing to sacrifice everything. He was willing to sacrifice the promise. You know why? Because he believed God. He believed that God could resurrect him from the dead. He believed God's promises. And therefore he knew that in giving up everything, he was gaining everything. He was gaining true true riches, if you will. Rahab, another, another example. I mean, I, I just, I'm pulling these out of the pages of James, right? Rahab was willing to 
give her life, sacrifice all that she knew for a God that she only had heard about. <clears throat> willing to give everything. Willing to sacrifice everything. Matthew sixteen twenty four. Christ says, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. But for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? You see, the, the believer has come to the understand that giving everything and sacrificing everything to Christ is where true life is found. In Luke 19, we see the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a, was a chief tax collector and he was rich. We, know, we may have heard the story, the, he was small in stature, so he ran on ahead and he climbed up in a tree in order to see Jesus. Jesus came by to that place and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And Zacchaeus obeyed, and he hurried, and he came down, and he received him gladly. And when the crowd saw it, they began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back what? Four times as much. You know what Jesus said to him? You see, Zacchaeus was willing to give up everything. Zacchaeus was willing to give up everything for Christ. You know what the Lord said to him right then and there? He says, today salvation has come to this house because he too, Zacchaeus too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save and to save that which was lost. The unbeliever comes to understand, or the believer that is, comes to understand that. While the unbeliever will not even forsake his own comfort. Will not even forsake his own comfort. Number 11. Believers understand the destructiveness of their tongue, while the unbeliever does not understand the poison of their tongue. James says, James says, tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. We've looked at these 11 contrasts briefly. If you're like me, if you like me as I was going through these, they make me, make me very thankful. You know why? I'm thankful for the finished work of Christ. Because whether you're sitting here, if you're sitting here as a believer today, if you're sitting here as one who knows Christ, you know this, that once you were all these things, Right? That all the things that we just described unbelievers as being once we were. If you're like me, you're very thankful. 
Because out of, outside of the work of Christ on the cross, I would still be in my sins. Amen. Outside of the work of the, of the, on the cross, of His work on the cross, and outside of His power, the power of His resurrection from the dead, I would still be facing death and the judgment of God. And get this. Outside of His finished work, I would fall back into my sins. Because He not only saves me, but He keeps me. In Romans 8, Paul writes, and we know, Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Then he says this, you know the reason why we know these things? Do you know the reason why we know that He works all things to the good of those who, who love God? Who those, to those who are called according to His purpose? It says, For those He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to, his, to the image of His Son, so that they would be firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also what? Glorified. If you're sitting here in Christ, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can have supreme confidence in Him that He has not only, he has not only saved you, but He's going to keep you saved. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes some of the most amazing verses about the Lord Jesus and about the nature of our salvation. Remember when I started this sermon, I talked about this man who had turned from the faith. He denied the deity, deity the, the fact that Jesus is God. In Colossians 2.6, we're going to have a time of communion in just a moment. And as we go through this, I want you to be thinking through these things. I want you to be meditating on these truths. In Colossians 2.6 it says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Then he says this in verse 8, See to it, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Verse 9. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. Now for you believers here, these should be some of the most encouraging verses in the Scriptures. 
when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having what? Forgiven us. Having forgiven us of some of our transgressions. It's not what it says, is it? He's forgiven us all. All our transgressions. Having canceled out. Having canceled out. The certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. This debt you could never pay. This debt that that none of us could ever pay. It's been canceled out. It's been crossed through and the, the stamped, forgiven, no longer owed. It's hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. All those things that, that we described as unbelief. If you're sitting here today, it's been nailed to the cross. You bear it no more. What a wonderful truth. He has canceled out that certificate of death. Debt, that is. Taking it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And because of what He has done. Not what we have done. Because of what He has done we can have great confidence in our salvation. If you're here today and you trust that you're good enough, you're tragically mistaken. I urge you to repent. I urge you to call out to Christ, the only one who can save you. I had a conversation with a young man this past week who told me that came to the realization that he couldn't do it on his own. He laid down his weapons and he turned to Christ. There are those here today that need to do that. There are those here today who need to stop trusting in their own goodness and turn to Christ. Trusting in what He has done.